Welcome back to Brooklands and this edition of The Track. My name's Tim Morris. Today we hear from the racing driver Tiffany Dell, who is perhaps better known for his presenting duties on shows such as Top Gear and Fifth Gear and a YouTube show called Love Cars. Tiff is also a former trustee of Brooklands Museum and he was delighted to be back in the clubhouse to talk about his early life in Weybridge, how he won a racing car, dicing on the track with Nigel Mansell and more. He was talking to Harry Sherrard and he begins by talking about his father. Yeah, he lived just down the road. He came to this area to work for the Fairmile um, boat mob. Uh, most torpedo boats. He's a naval architect by trade, loved boats. But he came to live in Weybridge, I don't know, in the, in the early 30s, taking this job. And uh, while designing the boats at Fair Marley, he started to be lured to Brooklands to watch those amazing aero engine devices blasting round. Uh, so that's what started the Adele passion for, for motorsport. And then, uh, as you can see, he <laughs> took part in some slightly less dramatic competitions. Uh, whilst at the same time during the war, designing motor torpedo boats and, and guarding Weybridge Post Office as part of the Home Guard. <laughs> and uh, he always laughed about the time when the first time halfway through the war, they actually gave him one bullet for his rifle. Which he'd, <laughs> he'd guarded the post office with just the bayonet for about two years, and they finally gave him one bullet. Whether that was to commit suicide or not in the invasion, or to try and shoot one person, I'm not sure. So uh, the Nidells arrived in Weybridge in the, in the mid-30s. So if we jump on now to, to, the, to the post-war years, now I'm sure a lot of people here have tickets for the 79th members meeting at Goodwood, and here we have your father competing in the very first <laughs> members meeting at Goodwood in uh, 1949. Yeah, because he's, uh, you know, obviously the motorsport ended at Brooklands with the war, and then after the war, Goodwood became the new Brooklands when the BARC moved down there, and uh, yeah, Dad was out there, and he's, like, it's an old Ford, I don't know what it is, to be honest, I always I forget what it is. Well, it says in your book it's a Ford V8. So it was a Ford, it was something yeah. like that anyway. Yeah. And he, they did these three lap races, you know, handicap as well. And I've got the results somewhere, and I think he started the middle of the pack and got overtaken before the end of the three lap race. Uh, but of course, then he started a young family. My elder brother was born in 1948, and uh, that's when the mother said that motor racing ends. And um, so sadly, it was a very short racing career. Not that he could afford to do it anyway, whilst he continued to be a bankrupt um, naval architect. <laughs> But as you mentioned earlier, you, you, you lived very near here, and I think as a teenager you came down, obviously the museum and everything wasn't active in those days, but you came down to Brooklands to, to play as a, as a yeah, teenager. Yeah, all the time. Because I was actually born in Havant. Everyone says I was born in Havant, Hampshire, which I was, because my mother's mother uh, lived in Havant. And uh, in those days it was more common that the wife disappeared to her mother's house to uh, have the babies, because us dads didn't get involved, which is probably a good thing, really. But now we're forced to come <laughs> watch all these goings-on, which we probably wouldn't want to, really. But... Uh, so I was actually born in Haven where my uh, grandmother lived, and, uh, but as soon as I was about three months old, I was brought home to, to live here in, in Weybridge uh, in, in five Oatlands Mere, Oatlands Drive, a big old a block of flats which was so cold in the winter. People were coming about cold now. I can remember we used to put about five blankets on and go to bed with three jumpers. And uh, it was a big old building where there's now a lovely housing estate. And uh, actually my dad was brilliant. I don't understand why he was bankrupt because he was that useless with money. Because um, we moved into Weybridge in 1948 or 9, rented this flat, and uh, we stayed in that same flat uh, for about 20 years throughout the 60s and 70s. Because he, he didn't want one of these mortgage things; he probably couldn't have got one anyway, because he was always in the red. But what I think he could have bought an acre of Weybridge for a thousand pounds would be worth a million pounds by now. But uh, 
So yeah, we lived in a rented flat in Boatman's Beer for all those years, but it was a lovely place to grow up. And of course, one of the attractions, you know, was Brooklyn's, you know, so my dad had told me about it and told his stories. And uh, so we used to cycle down to the outside of the banking and crawl up through the woods, look over the top and watch out for the um, security guards. What was the company? British Airways before British Airways was, was um, Vickers, wasn't it? Vickers, yeah. And uh, we'd keep an eye out for the security guards, and when they weren't around, we'd slide down the banking and do as much mischief as we could until we were someone spotted a security guard, and then we scrambled up the banking as quick as we could. We soon learned that hobnailed boots, they couldn't catch us very well get up the banking, so we could usually outrun them. But uh, it's a lot, and also we, under, under the Hennepin Bridge, we used to walk across the, the concrete uh, beams and uh, so had a lot of fun at Brooklands, not watching any motorsport, but uh, just mucking around as kids. Mm. So, uh, so fast forwarding that a, f- a few years, you, you got the motor racing bug by uh, by watching it at Goodwood mainly. You you, you were telling us, and uh, obviously it was a dream to go to be able to go racing, but couldn't afford to. No, that's well. And as soon as I take the Goodwood, your dad took us, you know, the family. We had Austin. We had Austin Sevens. We had a car for it. I love to. I love telling these silly stories because it's the old, um, you know, I we licked tarmac off road. You know, I we were we were lucky. So I always remember we had no fridge and no car and no television and, you know, it's amazing what the 50s, early 50s, you know, mid 50s, uh, these are all things a lot of families didn't have. Uh, and eventually we started buying a car because the Ford broke down that used to take us to Goodwood at first. And I was about three or four years old when I first went to Goodwood and as soon as I climbed the bank on the exit of the Woodcote Chicane, it's still there, the famous chicane. And that first time I peered over the top and saw these loud, smelly, noisy, colourful cars being wrestled through the corners. Uh, all I wanted to be was a racing driver, you know, and uh, that was where I was inspired. And we went to every Easter Monday meeting and eventually after Dad's four broke down, we bought Austin 7s. And I always remember the price. Mum used to buy them for 10 quid because um, they were 1936, 37 Austin, Austin rubies. And I still remember we used to stop at the beginning of the South Downs on the way to Goodwood to fill up with water before the family Austin 7 would try to get over the top to go and watch the racing at Goodwood. So wonderful memories. And yeah, but I watched Sterling Moss and Mike Hawthorne. I was there when you know, Sterling crashed and all that went on. And, but Jim Clark was my biggest hero. I watched his first single-seater race in that lovely Lotus 18. And that became a Lotus Clark fan for the rest of my life. That was you know, my biggest inspiration. But I uh, never really thought I'd be a racing driver, but um, somehow I got to be one. Well, and we, we all know the, the very famous story then of how you entered the autosport competition and uh, lo and behold, uh, you became the, the, the winner and uh, you won the, uh, the Lotus Formula Ford. There's a lovely fifth gear story. They're all on YouTube, these stories you want to look. We, we pointed out, I did a complete recreation of that picture because that is the magazine that I entered the competition in. So that's the inside of the entry form. And... Uh, I eventually won this magazine competition, won that very car and the trailer. Again, that film you just saw on Love Cars, that's on Love Cars, the whole history of when I towed it home with a Morris Thousand Traveller. But we recreated that very image. That little tiny tree on the left is now a huge oak tree or something. And it was quite uh, fun to go back up to Hethel and to recreate that. Um, and th- th- this guy looks like an early incarnation of the Stig. <laughs> yeah, that was really. Maybe that's, that's how it was supposed to be. So yeah, I entered this competition. It, it, was, it was a competition. That lots of those uh, 60s and early 70s competitions about putting things in order of importance and used to buy a column. It could be a Daz, you know, soap, what, what makes Daz whiter and you come out with 10 reasons you want a holiday in Tenerife or something. Uh, and I entered about 20 lines of this competition and somehow I came out with the right line that matched the expert judges line of how to prepare a car for a race. 
uh, and you know, won this amazing Formula Ford. I was 19 years old. Um, and by then, we were living in my in my granny's house. In we'd moved away from another house. We were out with my granny. It was her house now. Um, and I still remember the time, there were two things. First of all, when the phone rang, I was watching Olivia Newton-John singing, If Not For You. <laughs> it's a genuine story. And there was so much reading. I hope mum would answer because I was so lusting after Olivia Newton-John singing in that velvet catsuit she wore at the time. <laughs> and the flipping phone was ringing. And so mum, nobody answered. So I had to pick up the phone. And, and the, the voice just said, oh, this is Simon Taylor from Autosport. You're a very lucky man. And I didn't remember anything after that. I was just, I've got a little tickle in my throat now and tears. It was just so weird and iconic. And he waffled on about, I don't know, picking the guy. I had to phone him back the next day to sort of say, was that true almost? I was, so I went down the pub and got pissed in the Flint Gate in, in, in Oaklands Village, our favourite pub. And my mate suddenly pointed out, well, when it's being announced, it's April the 1st next Thursday. Are you sure it's a... But... Um, and my, my granny, because it was a popular thing in those days, straight away said, of course it's one of those competitions where you can take the money or the prize, isn't it? <laughs> so I think granny thought I'd take the money and not the car, but uh, she was wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and there it was. So, you know, and all I owned then was a Morris Thousand Traveller, which um, I had to try and tow it on a brand new trailer, again, as I recreated that story just last year on, on Love Cars. So it was quite a thing to suddenly be the owner of this gleaming racing. I was a civil engineer. I, was a, I started um, university doing a five-year sandwich degree course in civil engineering, uh, which meant I was out working every, winter, every summer, getting work experience. And then in the winter, I was at university. So it was actually quite handy because I was being paid money so I could set off and almost be a racing driver on my wonderful salary of £450 a year. <laughs> And it's crazy, it's all Monty Python stuff, isn't it? When you look back, to, I mean, of course, it was just about mid-70s when the pound went crazy, and, but early 70s, you know, the money was so stupid, we were, you know, taking home £45 a month. In fact, I remember now when I, before I won the car, my first um, summer away doing work experience, doing housing estates for George Wimpy and Company, was my sponsor as a civil engineer. And uh, I'd rented, a, a, I was doing these races at the Racing Drivers School in Brands. So before I won this, I'd actually still gone with all my money that I'd saved from being a postman and a kind of washing people's cars, borrowed Mum's Morris Thousand then to drive to brands and do the school races. And those school races were, I think it was 30 quid a race. And I think I rented a flat in Chelmsford, Essex, for £10 a month. So that was 40 of my £45 take-home money. And I used to hitchhike home from Chelmsford and jump through the train stations and get on the free on the train to come home to Weybridge to eat money and borrow mum's Boris thousand. So I used to live on five pounds a month in 1970, and it's just such crazy money now. You have to multiply by 20 to make it real money. But um, there were a lot of sacrifices going on with this dream to try and come true. But I like I got a sponsor. A friend gave me 10 pounds per race if I took him with me. And so uh, you know, for the next five years, I was a mechanic in my little lock-up garage in Weybridge that I borrowed off someone and, and, then, <laughs> and then the weekend you know I was the van driver the mechanic and the racing driver and we used to we used to set off with the Morris Thousand in the trailer at about 3am to get to Snesterton for races and it was an amazing time we were racing virtually every weekend because Formula Ford then was a bit like the karting of today because it was where you started motorsport karting was a fun thing in, in the late 60s early 70s it wasn't a serious motorsport um, so Formula 4 was where every driver began and we'd have a race every weekend I mean you could have a club race and there were 30 or 40 cars 
There were three national championships by the mid-1970s that we'd do all three of them. So it was an amazing amount of racing. And uh, I was just in my van with my mate and, you know, we'd drive for the race, crash one or lost and drive home and have a pint of bitter on the way home whether you lost or won. And uh, it was just a fantastic time. And uh, I don't think every racing series would be ever the same. So they have a karting, you have to have a parent with you. You know, in those days you had to have a driving license in order to be a racing driver. So um, we could take ourselves to races. But uh, now, of course, dads take the kids and you can't, can't race. They're racing Formula Fords when they're 14 or 15 now, aren't they? I think so, yeah. So um, you have to have a parent with you and have to be a very rich parent nowadays. <laughs> Because the so great thing, they were so simple to run, the suspension, you could actually, you know, I was then mechanic myself, and you could be competitive uh, setting up the car yourself and just using your driving skills that older cars tend to be more driver than, than chassis. But now these Formula Fords are so precise, these young single-seater drivers, if the suspension's two millimetres wrong in ride height or the preload in the suspension is a pound or two out, you just can't drive the car around the corners. You can't drive around a bad chassis. Whereas the beauty of those days, you could. by the Allman Brothers Band first came out in 1973 on their albums Brothers and Sisters and subsequently become very well known as the theme tune to Top Gear of course our connection this month is Tiffany Dell who was once a presenter on Top Gear as we'll now find out back to Tiff and Harry so we we mentioned the uh, the dreaded Mr. <laughs> dreaded Mr. C here. You are having a, fr- a frank exchange of views. Now there, there must be a couple of anecdotes about uh, Jeremy Clarkson that you can uh, share with us. Well, the very few, the trouble is we didn't meet that much in the early days because we, we'd filmed individually and stuff. But because uh, I got the top gig called what 1987, because I've been doing writing magazine stories. I did anything to try and earn a bit more money. So I was a track tester for Autosport. Then I've been alongside Murray Walker, the nicest man I've ever met in the world. I was called in. That was from Top Gear, really, to, to be the voice. That was before Top Gear, of course. I was the ex, one of the early expert analysts when um, James Hunt was in the Formula One, but Grand said a lot of Formula Two and Formula Three and Rallycross, and James couldn't be bothered to do those stuff. So um, the BBC got me in because they'd seen my writing and stuff. And uh, so I'd been on Top Gear about 1987, and then Jeremy joined about a year later to bring his humour f- to it, and uh, we all got along. It, it was a lot of fun, but he is quite a character. But it's best summed up, really, the only story that's, that's almost usable. <laughs> because 
We started those stage shows because the magazine was launched in the mid-90s. We had about six million watching then. It was as big as it ever got, you know, and it, with, with um, Quentin Wilson, of course, and yeah, Clarkson and me. We were on the stage in Birmingham, then London for the motor shows, and it's a live show five times a day the whole two weeks. So we used to live in Birmingham, and that's when we got to know each other very well, how much money, how much you all drank every night. And um, there was one awful w- weekend, and I don't know why he did it, because we were going to Birmingham, and he was writing one of his columns, as he started to be a big columnist then, and he decided to write a column about Birmingham the day before we were going to live there for two weeks. <laughs> and he likened Birmingham to a rugby player's bath with a plug pulled out. <laughs> Empty in the middle with a ring of scum on the outside. <laughs> so we're now going to Birmingham. Jeremy, when we all got there, Jeremy, we, we, that, so we, all the restaurants, we got some, we all laughed about it at the end. But, uh, he's quite a character. I mean, I love his farm show. I mean, obviously he gets a bit bigger with his boots sometimes. But uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun together. Well, you, you brought that unique blend of uh, you know, the, the presenter and the racing driver to, uh, to, to Top Gear and other, other TV. And I know James May, a bit more kindly, said you're, you're, you're the best guy living that can drive and talk at the same time. <laughs> well, I, I, remember, I remember watching you one time, this is some years ago, and possibly a Jaguar, certainly a Group C car, you're at Silverstone and you're going along. You yeah. went, I remember you going oversteer in, oversteer out. You're like 150 miles an hour sliding this car and talking at the same time. I mean, how do you do that? Oh, I know. It does seem to be ridiculously I'm able to do Well, that was what got me onto Top Gear, really, because that Formula First racing car back in 1987, uh, Chris Goffey was supposed to drive it, but he broke his ankle uh, skating, so he couldn't drive it for an item on Top Gear. So I said they'd read my stories in Autosport, so they got me in uh, for this one test. I was only going to do it once, just to the driving for Chris Goffey. And I'd watch telly like we all do, and I thought, it always looks a bit easy, doesn't it? It looks a bit just, oh, just go around the corner, it looks too easy. So li- literally, before I did that test, I said, what I'll do is I'll flick it sideways to make it look a bit more on the ragged edge. And, of course, talk at the same time. So that was the first thing I did, that very first test, which then set me up to do that for the rest of my life. Uh, and it was a unique thing that the BBC loved, and they thought, well, how can I do that? How can I? I don't know how I can do it, I could just keep talking I suppose but then yeah, as you said I've kept on doing that for about 50 years now <laughs> yeah, yeah. what's 87 to now I've can't work it all out now too many years isn't and, it wow yeah an incredible talent so um you then in uh, 1993 I think you went from sort of mo- Who, who's that behind me oh well you, you went from sort of being mo- mo- motor racing's Mr. Nice Guy to sort He's of pu- 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 public you. enemy number one um <laughs> Maybe you need to set the background to the, to the race, what, what, what's actually going on there. Nige again, Nige coming back to plague my life. We thought we got rid of him forever. We went off to America to, after he won the Formula 1 Championship and then he won the IndyCar Championship and then Ford decided that they ought to welcome Nige home because there was this great toker shootout for touring cars at Donington Park. And um, so I'm sure many of you remember it. Uh, so they gave him a, a full Mondeo, which you can see a small part that's still in one piece at this moment of the photograph. Yeah, this, um, this, is, this is Nigel here, so he, he sort of barged his way past you, didn't he? So, yeah, so he, he, I mean, he struggled to get rid of this, because obviously this Cavalier, because I'd raced a Nissan, which wasn't competitive, but I finally got this really quick car. David Leslie was my teammate. We were running first and third with Paul Radicic, I think, was second at the time. And it was about a £12,000 prize. For me, this was a massive chance not only to have a good touring car race, but to, to win £12,000. Apparently, Nigel got hundred grand for turning up. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, he battled up through the field, because he, he struggled a bit early on, but he was going quick in this Mondeo. 
And actually, the very next corner after that, down into Redgate, I was well ahead under brake, and I thought, I've got him, I can take the racing line. But he came barging up the inside. And, um, <laughs> and escorted me off the road with a lot of clattering. In fact, that, that right-hand door mirror has only got a straight of Redgate left to live on before he took that off. So he clobbered me off the road. So I was then on the grass coming out of Redgate after he'd driven me off the road. And that like, Steve Soper got by in the BMW that you can see That's him here in the top Steve of the shot. Yeah. So then going down the Craner curves, and you, I could hear the roar of the crowd because, you know, they're night and they're all wearing their red five T-shirts and Union Jack flags and tour shorts. The whole night, the sun had got special T-shirts printed, I think. And they were going mad for him. I mean, brilliant. He'd come up from about 10th or something. He was now in third place. Nigel's going to win the race. And into Redgate Corner, not Redgate, Old Hairpin, the bottom of the hill. And the thing went more and more sideways. And we all know in front-wheel drive cars, they, they don't usually come back from that unless you hit the throttle and spin up the front wheels. Anyway, Nigel on board was back. <laughs> if you've seen the on board, but he'd huffing and puffing. Anyway... He was spearing off to the right, so Soper went by him behind him, so I went to follow Soper, and all of a sudden his massive amount of opposite lock took control, and he just turned sharp left and came across in front of me. So I tried to break to avoid him, which is visible on the video, but I just punted him straight off. And, um, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, it, yeah. it, was a, it was a hell of an impact. I mean, he it hit that wall hit really harsh. Yeah. Anyway, it was <laughs> <laughs> we all knew, his, in fact, everyone knew it was perfectly normal, because when the marshals got to him, apparently he was lying there, he said, don't touch me, I'm unconscious. <laughs> so, so, we all knew Nigel wasn't really too badly injured. Anyway, by the time we all sat on the grid, waiting for a restart, and waiting for ambulances and helicopters, there were a few spectators started coming along on the other side of the track giving me some weird-looking signs. So I'd been responsible for this outfit. But yes, I was the man that put Nigel into the Donington Wall. Most famous. Things I'm most famous for. I'm not really, you know. <laughs> now, now, you must have crossed paths with Nigel since then. Do, do, do you ever discuss it when, you, when you've seen him? Not really, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's too busy telling me how good his golf is and that sort of thing, you know. Oh, I'm good at golf. I'm good at that. I'm good at that. I'm good at ping-pong. Did you know that? Yeah. Do you play ping-pong, Tiff? I'm good at ping-pong. <laughs> Amazing character. Amazing. Oh, great. It's, it's funny, I always compare... It's quite interesting to think of Nige and how drivers... Cause it's amazing how different talents... We always talk about the great naturals, like Jim Clark or Ayrton Senna or Schumacher. But see, Nige wasn't a great natural talent. And it's this ability that different tiles of talent... Cause, see, Damon Hill wasn't really a great natural talent. But you, I always put this as a sort of element of natural ability with hard work and sort of hooliganism. And you can put the three, like Keke Rosberg was 90% hooligan, you know, and, and Ronnie Peterson, you know, had this amazing style, but didn't care about the setup of the car, it just wrung its neck. And I was like, like the thing when I was at Monaco in the Formula One car. And it's amazing, when you first go on a track like that and you're sort of a bit out of your depth, it's all about this where your mind, when I was going into the, the next corner at Monaco in the first dozen or so laps, my sort of brain was still in the corner before, thinking, what the hell happened there? And where has that barrier gone? You know, it's like your, your, your body's ahead of you with the car. And gradually, my brain would catch up. So my best sort of moments, my brain was about six inches behind my body. So I was just about keeping up with it. And Nigel's a driver. He literally works at the moment. His, his brain is with the body and the car. So he just reacts to whatever goes on. 
And I always liken how I explain how the, the Senna's and Schumacher's are, are so, um, and Hamilton's is that their mind is actually ahead of their body. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. how they're so far more natural and relaxed. They're not resting the car ever. Yeah. They've yeah. got the corner sorted before the car gets there. But Nigel was probably the best at just wrestling a car. Amazing strength and shot off the road more times than I can remember. So, so you then sort of turned full circle and many, many years later you tracked down your original Lotus yeah. and, and you bought it back again. How, how, how on earth did you, did you find it and where, where has it been all those years? Well, I sold it to, to Austria, a dodgy cash deal, because I'd had it for two and a half years and it was bent as anything. And again, it was how I got up my career because I raced that for two and a half years, did fairly well. Then I got offered a cost price chassis, which allowed me to sell the Lotus so I could just about keep going. And Eldon gave me a cost price chassis. So I sold it to a bloke in Austria who'd come over and seen it. And Lotus 69 was a popular car in Austria. And he actually flew me, he didn't give me any money, and I had to put the car in a mate's transporter that was racing in Austria, and I hadn't got any cash. Oh, terrifying moments. But he paid my airfare, so I flew out to Vienna, and he gave me the cash at a car park in Vienna, and I was waiting <laughs> to get mugged, and oh, I flew home, little innocent, I was about 22 by now, never been overseas before, I don't think, hardly, and then got the cash to come out. So anyway, I'd sold it to Austria. Then I heard it being off the edge of a hill climb, and it was dead forever. But anyway, suddenly I was actually on a plane, weird story, on a plane going on a holiday, and this bloke came up to me and he said, I've got your car. Right. I said, well, how can you? It's written off. But no, it came back to it. The bits came back to it. It's got the same chassis number, but, it's, it, but it's, <laughs> none of the bits that I sold are still on it. He's got new chassis and new suspension, and, uh, but it's the same chassis, but the gearbox is the same chassis number. So it was my car, and uh, I resisted buying it for about five or six years, and then I had to have it in the end. Had to, it had to come home. So I sold it for about one and a half grand and bought it back for 30. So it <laughs> wasn't the best deal I've ever done, I don't think. But the lovely thing is that I had my first ever race. This is a great pub quiz song, pub quiz question. So I had my very first race win in that car in 1972 at Thruxton. And in about 2014, over 40 years later, I won a historic Formula Ford race at Thruxton. So same driver, same car, winning a race at the same circuit with about a 40-year gap. Must yeah, be quite a good amazing, amazing, yeah. 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 It's been such a joy to race it again, you know, because the Formula Fords, I mean, you wear them, you know, and you can just about touch the front wheels and your little tiny cockpit, and every little tiny reaction on the steering is so precise. And you, as I said, I prepare it myself. I set it up still like I did, change the gear ratios. I always remember the first time when I won the car back in Weybridge, um, I'd had a friend with a bit of pen and paper and I pulled the gearbox apart for the first ever time and he wrote down the order the bits fell out so I could just <laughs> get them back in in the same order. But um, yeah, I've raced about well, 20 times since I've had it back and uh, it's just an absolute joy. So, so another, another thing you, you get up to these days, you get to behave like a, like a bit of a hooligan at uh, Thruxton three, three or four days a week. That's the fact that still that's a man kind of all job, still earning a dollar or two here. Yeah, passenger rides at Thruxton. Everyone wants to come and sit beside me, three laps of the videos, sideways, 140 miles an hour. Yeah. I'd take four year olds on booster seats and 84 year olds with Zimmer frames. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Stick you in a passenger seat and let you laugh, cry, or scream for three laps. And, I've now done 7,000 rides over the last 10 years doing that. Amazing. So 7,000 rides, three laps. So that's um, that's 21,000 laps of Thruxton, burning Pirelli's tyres to shreds. So I I enjoyed that. It's amazing, really. I mean, nobody, you know, everyone, I do laugh, cry, or scream. I don't really care which. But, you know, 
The biggest thing is that so many um, normal-ish people just said they couldn't believe that a road car could do that. They're almost staggered. They cannot believe mm-hmm. what a well, car could do. I remember following you into the chicane a couple of times. You were, let's say, a little bit sideways. <laughs> that's just, that's just about, it's a lot of I do enjoy doing that. Brooklyn's News. The full video of Harry's chat with Tiff is now available on our YouTube and Vimeo channels. Just search for Brooklyn's members. Coming up, we have rally driver Paddy Hopkirk on the 17th of February, and then Ayrton Senna's chief mechanic Neil Trundle will be with us on the 3rd of March. Some in person tickets may still be available. But if they sell out, then live stream tickets are available to watch from home, as it happens. We are delighted that you'll be able to see us again on the TV weekly from the 1st of February with a new series of the hugely popular Secrets of the Transport Museum. You can catch our antics on the Yesterday channel or on UK TV Catch Up. The museum is open every day except Monday and you can look forward to a full events programme throughout 2022, which begins on the 27th of March with the ever-popular mini-day. Just go to brooklandsmuseum.com for all the information. Thanks for listening.